Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Donald McIntyre, and this is Click for Murder, the companion podcast to CBS Reality's new television series. Now, throughout this series, we're revealing some of the most disturbing crimes of recent history, where the internet has been used as a tool to trick, torture, and to kill innocent victims lured into a virtual world where nothing is quite what it seems. On today's episode, we investigate social media killer Stephen Port, who found his victims on gay dating websites and then poisoned them. He's one of the most prolific British killers of recent times, murdering at least four men, maybe more. But why did he have this compulsion to kill? How was he able to get away with these terrible crimes for so long? And what role did social media play in helping him murder again and again? Well, joining me to discuss the case of Stephen Port are Dr Elizabeth Yardley, the Director of the Centre for Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University, and Clinical Forensic Psychologist Mike Berry. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Hi. Stephen Port moved to an estate in Barking in London in 2006 and worked as a chef at the nearby bus depot. His neighbours described him as a bit of a recluse, antisocial and a bit odd-looking. Now, what else do we know about Stephen Port, Liz? Well, he was quite introverted. We've heard that he was bullied as a child. He was somebody who who wasn't very confident in himself and wasn't particularly happy with the person that he was. Mike? I find it interesting that people described him as antisocial, cold, which is unusual because when you talk to people about serial killers, they always say, oh, he's a very nice chap, quiet chap down the bottom of the road, didn't cause any trouble, would be the last person you'd expect to be a serial killer. But this guy actually comes across as being odd to start with, so people don't like him. And that I find quite interesting because it's so against the normal practice of serial killers. Well... I mean, for his age, I mean, in his generation, it wasn't odd for people to come out about their sexuality. But he came out in his 20s. Now, why was he so late in coming out about the fact that he was gay? Well, it would appear to be quite late, wouldn't it? And I think perhaps what he was trying to do here was to protect himself. So he'd been bullied earlier on in his life. And I think he was trying to limit, you know, the the number of sticks that other people could beat him with, really. Plus, his parents didn't want him to be gay. His mum was disappointed. The classic, I want grandchildren and you're not going to give me grandchildren argument. 
How does that impact upon him, Mike? Well, it makes him feel that he's not a full man. He's he's not the right person that his parents wanted. He's going to have lots of guilty feelings about that, which he shouldn't do. I mean, if he's gay, he's gay, end of story. But he's going to have a lot of guilt about that and hiding his sexuality, which he did until he came to the big city. The big city allows him to be more of himself. And I think that is the key because he starts then to exercise more control over his sexuality. He starts to have a lot more sexual experience without any criticism. There's the fact that he repressed that public persona of him being a young gay man. Does that perhaps feed into his later activities as being extremely prolific and active on a range of gay dating sites later on in life? He really does go at these dating sites, doesn't he? He creates a a tremendous number of profiles, an incredible number of different personas. So is it that he's almost kind of making up for lost time? I mean, he's been kind of limiting himself in terms of how much of himself he shows to the outside world. But on the internet, he really can be whoever he wants to be. He's a kid in a sweet shop. He's come from a, a very restrictive, sexually inhibited family background to being in the big city and the world is at his feet. He's going to enjoy it, and why not? I, I get that, but is there a sense that, that, having been repressed about his true sexuality for so long, that he's found it difficult to talk about it openly, and the anonymity of these gay dating uh, websites kind of betrays a low confidence or lack of confidence in his sexuality in himself? No, I think I see it much more convenient. If you go onto the web page, you're dealing with people who also are interested in sex. It's a very efficient way of meeting up with sexual partners, isn't it? You don't have to go to the hassle of arranging a date, of buying dinner, of buying drinks. It's it's straight in there. But I suppose the point I'm making is that it appears as if he found dating in the real world a challenge. Yeah, I think he did lack quite a lot in the way of social skills in terms of, of having a, a conversation with somebody and meeting somebody. So, so I think when you're behind a screen and you're not seeing somebody face to face, you are going to behave in in a different way. What's interesting is that on his online profile, he wore a wig. Was this just to make him look younger or was there more to it than that? Here's criminal psychologist Craig Jackson. For Port, the blonde wig was a symbol of power. It was a symbol of potency. He was able to take the blonde wig that he used, these online selfies, and that was his link with the positive, confident Port that he was able to draw into the real world. Certainly... The difference between his persona uh, with the wig on and with the wig off, it was really quite a transformation, Liz. I think what he's doing here, he's performing, isn't he? He's creating this individual that he wants to be seen as on these dating sites. And he knows what it's like on these dating sites. He knows that you've got to look attractive, you've got to look young, you've got to look a particular way. And I think this is just his way of, of meeting that standard. Mike, did the wig give him confidence in the way that lots of cosmetic procedures give other people confidence? Are we simply reading too much into it? I think without doubt you're reading far too much into it. It's As Liz just said, he is performing, he's selling himself. It's, it's just prostituting himself, as people do in any form of sexual relationship. We know he had over 20 online profiles marketing himself, as you say, as a naval officer, another as a special needs teacher. I mean, these were all lies. Mike, why? It's fantasising because he's got a very low-level job, he's got a low-level existence, but by going on the internet and saying, oh, I've got a degree from Oxford, or I'm this, this and this, it makes him sound more attractive. That's going to get better quality people applying to him for sex. 
Mm, he's he's trying on a range of different identities, isn't he? And he's, he's seeing which ones work out the best for him. And he knows that certain jobs will attract a certain sexual partner. And are there any red flags, you know, that are jumping out at this stage to you, Liz? I think for me, it's the number of of different online personas that that he has, all, all of these different people that he's he's trying to be. I think. Most of us, when we're, we're on the internet, we're on dating sites, are not going to be our true selves, are we? We're always going to embellish and exaggerate to a, a certain degree. But I think this really was taking it a, a little bit too far. Do we think at this stage there was any hint that he was a murderer in the making? Was he just looking for sex or was he planning for murder? No, I don't think at that stage he was planning for murder. I think certainly later on he was, but... In the initial time, when he's getting 20 different images, I think he's just selling himself as much as he can and he's trying to fish in a big pond. In June 2014, Port used one of his online profiles to hook up with Anthony Walgate, a 23-year-old student and a part-time male escort. He offered £800 to Anthony to persuade him to spend the night with him at his barking flat. Anthony would never leave the flat alive. Port spiked Anthony Walgate's drink with a lethal dose of the party drug GHB. As he lay dying, he then raped him. Extraordinarily, Port dumped the body on the street where he lived and even anonymously called the police to alert them. Cook Street, there's a young boy. Look at his cats outside. I don't know. Outside of which number? Uh, 758. Cats or anesthesia or something. It's always just drunk. Like, yeah. Do you know if he was breathing? No, I don't know. Did you see anything happen at all? No. I mean, here we are listening to Port effectively creating an alibi, creating excuse and alerting the police to the body, to his victim he had just murdered. It does seem almost ludicrous, doesn't it? He is literally offering himself up on a plate. He's he's hiding in plain sight. Now, this is what no, I disagree. I think... I think in this case, what we've got is a guy who planned to kill. I think quite clearly he planned to kill. But like a lot of killers, he hasn't thought about a disposal. He's thought about how he's going to kill him. He's, he's taken him, given him alcohol, given him drugs, had sex with him, done everything he wants. And then he's forgotten what to do the next. So what does he do? He panics and he literally carries the guy out and drops him outside the house. Bad planning, not the kind of thing you would expect from somebody who was planning to kill more people. I didn't really hear too much panic in that voice. It seemed really, you know, as the 999 operator probably heard, mm, this is a cool, calculating, rather devious and low-key report of a you know, victim of body outside his flat. Yeah, he does seem very kind of cool and calm. Um, he, he has kind of got it together, hasn't he? He doesn't sound like he's, he's panicking at all. Explain his use of GHB. What is it and how might it help him to escalate his thought process? GHB, it, it's been commonly known as, as a party drug. It's gamma hydroxybutrate. Essentially, it's a depressant to the central nervous system. It functions as, as something of a relaxant, something of a sedative, and it's available in liquid, powder or, or pill form. And in liquid form, it can be used in incredibly violent ways. It can be used to subdue victims. Most people use it to induce a kind of euphoric, sociable state, but, but in large quantities, it really can knock people out. Do we think that Port accidentally gets gave Walgate too much GHB. Was this an accident or was he, did, he del- did he deliberately set out to overdose him and make him comatose and kill him? I think without any doubt that's what he planned. He loved the control. He was getting off on control. 
the fact that he drugs somebody, makes him unconscious, and then rapes them clearly shows this man wanted to be in absolute control. And he didn't want any criticism from his partner. He didn't want any response from his partner other than having somebody there to have sex with. Liz, raping a dying man, is that the ultimate form in domination? Was that his ultimate fantasy? Well, he very much did want to be in control of his victims, didn't he? And I don't think he he seemed to care whether they, they lived or they died. And, and there certainly wasn't any kind of emotional reaction that we could hear in that phone call. Liz, for you, what do you think has changed? How has his thought process mutated from being a prolific user of these gay websites to being a serial killer? Well, he's somebody who who wants a sense of power, who wants a sense of control. And I think once you you get used to achieving a particular level of that, it's it's not enough anymore. I've got to pick up there, Donald. He wasn't planning to be a serial killer. It's not like, say, Colin Ireland, who the gay slayer in the 90s, who said quite clearly, I want to be a serial killer. I was involved in that case, and he made it very clear that was his aim. This case is different. This is an escalation of violence, control, that led to the ultimate homicide. I don't think he sat down and said, I'm then going to do more and more and more. I think the situation takes him over. He needs to have that buzz that you get from killing people. You can't repeat it in any other way other than killing. That's what led him on to the next murder and the next murder. Well, the police inevitably traced the 999 call to Stephen Port and also discovered that he had hired Walgate as an escort for that particular night. But when Port was questioned, he claimed Walgate had taken the lethal quantity of GHB and died as a result of an accidental overdose. In a panic, Port said that he dumped the body outside his flat because he was scared. Well, the police believed him and only charged him with perverting the course of justice and not murder. Now, Liz, I think this is the crux of this entire case. Why did the police believe his story? Because I think it was easier to believe his story than it was to challenge it. I think it, it fits with their narrative as to who these men are and how they behave and the kind of things that, that they do. It just it makes sense to them. So I think they, they engage in what I call interpretive denial. So they've got all of the facts and the evidence in front of them, but they're choosing to interpret it in such a way that justifies not acting on it in the way that they should. This surely would not have happened if Anthony Walgate, I think, was straight. I think the, the police see a guy there who clearly been under the influence of drugs, probably alcohol as well. The police are seeing a guy who's overdosed and that's it. I think the gay bit is a byproduct in many ways. I think if the fact that he was drugged uh, young, I think those were the issues, not I, the fact that he was gay. Well, I, I entirely disagree with you. I think it's front and centre of this entire case. Gay men doing things which are out of sync with a predominantly straight policing investigating pool. And they think, well, this is what gay guys do. They have prolific sex, they go on dating websites, they engage and they take too much drugs and death results. And I think this goes front and centre of the entire case, Liz. He, he's, he's effectively an invisible victim. Yeah, I think it is, it's a really important aspect in this case. We've got the group of people who are the victims of, of Stephen Poor are gay men. And the, I think that there is a particular kind of cop culture, particularly around sort of masculinity and this kind of alpha male approach to things. And I think that the police services is, is changing and the official line on things is, is always that we treat all victims equally. But I think some of those underlying prejudices are, are still cooking away when police officers are presented with this kind of case. I think this but case, when, they, sorry, when, when they first saw him, they didn't know he was gay. 
they just see a guy who's either overdosed or drunk or something of that nature. It's later when they talk to Port, they pick up the, the gay bit. So I think the initial response is, here we have a, a kid who is drugged or, or whatever. I think there's there's some prejudice, there's some judgment made right at the beginning, even if that's just on the basis of, oh, this is a drug user. And I think that influences the decision-making early on. And then when it comes out that, that this particular victim is gay, I think that's, that amplifies the stigma. And not just gay, but a rent boy. Now, we've seen this in victims before of sexual crimes and sexual assault in terms of prostitutes and the Ipswich uh, murder. And we've seen this where it just you don't feel as if the same attention would be given to a victim if they were straight or if they hadn't been operating in that particular mm. grey area. Yeah, but I think also the other problem is it's a transit population there, so people aren't shocked. If it was in a nice little rural village in Sussex, then everybody would have known within 10 minutes of the murder. This is a case where you've got lots of people moving around. He's not local. He's not known to many people. Therefore, there isn't the same impact. And what it's worrying is if you're going to get killed, you've got to make sure that the press are actually interested in you as a victim. And in many cases, if you're the wrong victim, the press aren't interested. Now, I think that concept of the ideal victim, and we've hit this uh, many times before in academia, Liz, the concept of the ideal victim, where does that fit in here? When we, we talk about ideal victims as criminologists, we're talking about people who, when they become the victims of crime, we're much more ready to be sympathetic towards them, to, to be concerned, to say, oh, that's terrible that that's happened to you. That's not your fault. We don't see them as blameworthy at all. But then when we we see people who might be engaged in in deviant or or dubious activity, we we have less sympathy for them. We tend to victim blame and say, well, it's kind of your fault that you became a victim of crime. He didn't fit in the idealised sense of a victim. And it it, it appears to me to show that there are quite fundamental errors that the police made in in judgment at the very start. As I say, it comes back to to the sense, why did the police believe Port's story? Why Why didn't they give him a harder time? Why would they? This guy is, initially, he rings up and says, there's a guy who's ill, injured, or something outside my block of facts. He's doing the Good Samaritan role. It's only later, when they start interviewing him, they realise that he's actually much more involved in it. But initially, he's playing the Good Samaritan. Well, I think what I'm trying to reveal is a problem which starts out here and then amplifies with victim number two, victim number three, and victim number four, Mike. I wouldn't disagree with you on that, but I think initially they were not homophobic, as you're suggesting. No, I mean, we're, we're not necessarily saying that. We're saying it's an underlying theme and maybe it's about hyper-masculinity. They're more comfortable investigating other crimes. I think that there are these social characteristics that are kind of floating around in the background. Who is this victim? You know, what, what kind of things do they do? What kind of person are they? And I think as particular elements get to be revealed... Then, then that does have an impact on, on the investigation. Getting back to the mindset of Port, I mean, the effect of getting away with it, what does that make him feel? Does he now feel as if he's impervious to the he's law? In, he's invincible. He's walking the, the great walk. He can do what he wants and nobody's going to pick him up. Plus, don't forget, he's got this underlying drive to repeat it because it was good. And if it's good, you want to do it again. And there's nothing that's going to stop him doing it again. That's when he starts on the serial killer mode. At the beginning, it's a one-off. But because he was so successful and it was so good for him, he's going to have to do it again and again. And that's the characteristic of the serial killer is this need to repeat and repeat and repeat. 
and he's he's walking on air at this point in time. He feels absolutely invincible, and and the fact that that he's dangled himself in front of the police and and they've they've not cottoned on to the fact that that he's the one who was responsible for this that that just adds to his sense of power. The role of extreme porn in this particular case, how significant is that? We always have a tendency to want to take one particular feature of a case and and blame that for it and say, well, if it hadn't have been for this, this wouldn't have happened. But I think it's it's just a factor in the background for for Stephen Paul. It weaves into his his narrative of power and and control. And I think we've got to remember that that serial killers don't emerge fully formed. I mean, he's probably been getting away with with sexual assaults for, for several years. He doesn't turn overnight from a normal, average guy into a serial killer. What kind of porn was he watching, Mike? Well, I gather he was watching the extreme end of violence where people are raping teenagers. He seemed to be very much into the Twinkie market. He wants young men who are being very violently raped as opposed to consensual uh, sex. One key part of this matrix is his obsession with Twinkies. Explain what Twinkies are. Essentially, when we're talking about Twinkies, imagine somebody from a boy band. We're we're looking at somebody um, who appears to be in their their teens or their early 20s. They're very kind of fresh face, very slim build, and little to no facial hair, body hair. Somebody who looks incredibly youthful. Port's second victim was 22-year-old Slovakian Gabriel Kavari. Two months after Port's first murder, Kavari made the fatal mistake of agreeing to be Port's flatmate and Port repeated his chosen method of murder and drugged Kavari with a lethal dose of GHB. Port raped him while he lay dying and then disposed of the body. Though he only carried Kavari's body 200 metres away to a local church and dumped the body in the graveyard. It's extraordinary, Liz, that he didn't find an alternative means of disposal, having failed to a certain degree. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. With disposing the first body outside his flat, he then decided, well, I'll, I'll just move 250 meters further. I think that that's exactly what's going on here. The first time um, he's he's dumped the body directly outside of his, his flat, but now he thinks, well, I need to take it take it further afield, further out of the way. But he's not really going to to any great lengths to completely dispose of it, to completely remove any trace of himself from it. Is this a man no. who wants to get caught, Mike? No, no, I disagree with you entirely. If you think about where he's chosen, graveyards and churches are very popular for young kids to take drugs, to take alcohol and for the older ones to have sex. It's an ideal place if you're going to dump a body and you're implying that they are drug-induced uh, deaths, then that would be the place to go. For somebody who hasn't got very good social skills, he's certainly aware of some of the narratives around particular groups of people, isn't he? And he's, he's playing on the, the time of day, so this is a time of day when there might be various people you know, stumbling home after a night out. So, so he has got quite an acute awareness of, of how to, to get away with this in a way that doesn't attract attention. But, I mean, are we lending too much kind of credence to his wisdom and, and intellect here? Clearly he just dumped the body there and you're suggesting as if he's interpreting the police reactions to this and maybe he's just realising that well the police weren't particularly bright this time round and they're not going to be particularly bright for the second time No I think this was much better planning he's had time to think about it I suspect he was being fantasising like mad while this guy's in his flat and he's really enjoyed the fantasy of knowing what he's going to do. And then when he does carry it out, he carries that out very efficiently. But he made no real effort to hide the corpse. I mean, if he wanted to make sure he would get away with it, he clearly would have brought it, you know, a little further away than 250 metres. It's, it's hard work. Try it. It's hard work carrying somebody a couple hundred yards. That's far enough away. The church makes it an ideal place, the graveyards, for what he was doing. I think it was a very good move. Why didn't anyone see him dragging a body along a busy road? Even if somebody had seen him him dragging this body along, they, they might assume that, that it's just two mates who've been down the pub together and one's had it a little bit too much. Often when we see things like this, we interpret them in ways that make sense to us. So I think that's what's going on there. What's extraordinary, he, he then begins to create this online profile and connects with a grieving ex-boyfriend of Kavari's and says, this fake profile says, he saw Kavari get into a taxi with a man. And so he's creating an alibi, but he also seems to be enjoying playing out and holding on to the narrative and the fantasy and enjoying the memories of that murder and that night. He's enjoying the memory of it, but he's also being sadistic in a psychological way rather than physical. We know he's sadistic physically. He's now moving into psychological sadistic behaviour, which is also equally enjoyable and something that he's controlling. Yeah, he's actually enjoying pushing people's buttons and pulling their strings and and just enjoying having that power over the people. The body was found by a dog walker, but the police believed it was just another case of a gay man overdosing. It seems extraordinary they didn't link the deaths. Two gay men, two overdoses, two bodies dumped more or less in the same area. Well, here's the view of criminologist Dr Jane Mockton-Smith. What clearly went wrong here? absolutely clearly that no linkage was made between the deaths of these young men. Men who are gay and in a certain scene 
they're expected more to die of drug death and it doesn't raise enough concerns perhaps in, when we're looking at those cases. Well, Mike, I'd throw it back to you. We've been talking about the ideal victim. And again, Jane Mockton smith says there that uh, they were nearly expected to die by these means. Why didn't the police officers make a connection between these two? I don't see why they should have made a connection. One is a guy who dies outside of Port's flat. There's no reason to link him with another gay death. It's initially a death of a drug addict. Mike, this isn't a war no. zone here. There are bodies no. falling around here. There's not a war zone. There are two gay men dying by the same No, there are two men dying. They they're don't, two, the, the gay bit is irrelevant at the beginning. It's relevant at the end. But at the beginning, it's another guy who's a drug overdose. No, I, th- that. No, I, I think it's, Liz, it's quite clear that, that very early on, this was, there were two gay men dying of overdoses in the same area. I mean, this is not the killing capital of, uh, of, of the world. This is, this is barking. I think what we've got going on here is that there is an element of I'm going to make an assumption about this victim because of of what I I think I know about this group of people. But I think also at the same time we need to remember that most police officers during the course of their career are never ever going to come across a serial killer. So they're not looking for one. With the police not linking the murders, Port was free to kill again. He found his third victim, 21-year-old Daniel Whitworth, through the gay dating app Grinder. And once again, he drugged his victim with a lethal dose of GHB and then raped him as he died. He dumped the body extraordinarily in the same graveyard of his local church. But this time, he did make an effort to cover his tracks and left a false suicide note on the body. Intriguingly, the note says, Don't blame the guy I was with last night. We only had sex. Then I left. He knows nothing of what I've done. Now, it appears, Mike, as if Port is becoming more sophisticated in his plans. I'm not so sure that he is because he's leaving the body at the same place that he left the previous body. That's, in my mind, a very poor way of doing it. It's a, it's a mistake. You shouldn't leave the body. You shouldn't leave it somewhere else. It confuses the police. They don't know what they're dealing with. Secondly, I think to get somebody to write a suicide note without any evidence of suicidal behaviour is very bad. The victim should have had a long history of psychiatric problems, should be on antidepressant medication, should have had previous history of suicide attempts. Then you've got a victim that you could claim to commit suicide. As far as we know, this victim has not matched any of those criteria. Unbelievably, Mike, police took the note at face value. How was that? They did the right thing. They are likely to think, here we have a suicide, we've had an accidental death at the same spot, we know that suicide people actually follow the pattern for other suicides attempts. They would be quite right to say, oh, are we going to get one of these suicide breakouts where we have loads of people coming and committing suicide? We had situations like that in small villages in South Wales where loads of teenagers started to commit suicide. It was almost a kind of copycat situation. The police are looking here, it's a copycat situation of the previous death, which they have not yet seen as being a homicide. I don't think they're thinking there's any sense of contagion here, but, I mean, what I'm challenging the police is that they appeared not to make any effort to try and talk to the man mentioned in the false suicide letter. There is always that that idea that the police should always investigate something first as a homicide before they rule that out. So so what was going on here with that? Why weren't they doing it in this case? You know, you appear to think that this was investigated appropriately, Mike. Yeah, I You think appear it... to be entirely 
on your own in this. I think you, what you've got to realise is that serial killers are extremely rare in the UK. It is not the kind of thinking your average Bobby is going to go into. He's much more likely to think of, oh, we've got suicide here, we've got accidental death, we've got overdose. He's not thinking about people being serial killers. It's very rare. And serial killers often advertise what they're doing. Nobody's advertising here what they're doing in the sense of leaving uh, his trademark or anything like that. Now, what's extraordinary is that Port did not kill all his victims of sexual assault. And in January 2015, Port arranged to meet 22-year-old Connor Huntley via Facebook. Back in his flat, Port drugged Connor's drink with GHB, as he'd done before. However, unlike his other victims, Connor woke up. And after coming around, Port showed Connor a video of him having sex with Connor while he lay unconscious under the effects of GHB. Now, Connor didn't go to the police. I'm not one to keep quiet. Like, I would tell all my friends everything. They all basically said he raped you. Obviously, I didn't see it as rape, so I never told the police or nothing. Why wasn't he killed, Liz? What Port is doing is he's enjoying that feeling of power that he's got over this particular victim. And he's almost threatening him, isn't he, by, by showing him this video, almost as if to say, well, you know, look, you're, you're the one that came here. And it's almost that sense of, of sort of victim blaming. You've allowed me to do this to you. Connor didn't see that as rape. I'm horrified that he didn't see it as rape. If he's not consented to sex, then it's rape, irrespective of whether he's drugged or not. But what I find interesting is that he's come round and challenged Port by not going unconscious and dying, he's challenged Port. Port is actually then faced with somebody. He can't go and kill him now. He's missed his opportunity. So, therefore, he lets him go. And if you look at Dennis Nielsen, Nielsen case many, many years before, he killed a number of men, but others he let go. And it's simply whether the timing's right. And for Port, in this case... It wasn't right. I think it's testament to Port's arrogance that he thinks that the guy isn't going to go to the police. I think he really does feel quite invincible at this point in time. So why wasn't Connor killed? Because it was wrong timing. If you want it to be in control, you want the guy unconscious, he's then ready to be strangled or, or killed. The fact that he came round was too much of a challenge. Port wouldn't be able to kill him face to face. He's in a different situation where he's no longer in control. When the victim is unconscious, he has total control. He's lost control, therefore he backs down. Does this suggest, is this a clue to the fact that Port didn't actually mean to kill his previous victims? And I return back to that uh, challenging concept of whether it was truly murder or manslaughter. I think he's he's well aware that even if he, he doesn't kill people, he, he is going to cause them some serious harm. Because look at what he's intending to do with people once they're, they're under the, the effects of, of GHB. So, so I think there's no question all of these are murders. Manslaughter doesn't come into it at all. In March 2015, Port's killing spree came to a temporary halt after he was sent to prison for four months for perverting the course of justice. This was related to the death of Anthony Walgate, which we talked about earlier, when Port claimed Walgate had overdosed and in a panic... He claimed he'd moved the body and just dumped it outside his flat. As we know, he lied at the time to the police about moving the body of his first victim, 
But the police believed his story. This is clearly another missed opportunity from the authorities. When they're re-engaging with the case and he's sentenced to three or four months in prison for perverting the course of justice, did somebody not say, he's going down for that? But there are now three victims of overdosing young gay men in the area within spitting distance of his flat. Even just in relation to this one case of, of Anthony Walgate, when you've, you've got a, a guy who's lied about the, the circumstances, the situations surrounding this young man's death, and it's been proved that he's lied, I think that does say maybe we should investigate this a little bit further and just dig a little bit deeper to see if there's anything else going on here. Following his release in September 2015, he claimed his fourth victim... Once again, he used Grinder to seek someone in the local area interested in a sexual hookup. That person was 25-year-old Jack Taylor. Back at Port's flat, history repeated itself. A lethal dose of GHB was given to Jack via a drink. He then raped Jack's lifeless body as he lay dying. The body was then dragged to the same graveyard he'd left two of his other victims. But this time, to try and cover his tracks, he planted a syringe in order to imply that Jack had died of a self-inflicted overdose. Port then went home to close his grinder account in an effort to cover all of his digital connections to the victim. But once again, Liz, extraordinarily, the police did not make any connection between all of these deaths of gay men in a local area and three gay men in the same graveyard within a small calendar frame. And I think by this point in time, I think somebody somewhere should be asking some some questions. So this graveyard, he's used it as a deposition site on more than two occasions. So this should be putting up a red flag for the authorities. I get it that in defending the police and their investigation over the first three murders that... uh, It's very rare that police officers come across a serial killer. I get that. But we are stretching credulity here at this stage. Three bodies by the same means in the same area and now four within spitting distance of each other. There's no way you can defend the police on the fourth one. It's absolutely ridiculous that they didn't start thinking the obvious. The connections are there. They've got the same name appearing they should have done something at that stage. And I find it annoying that they still didn't. And it was actually the family that start kicking off and starting to say, what about CCTV? What about the connections? And the police seemed to be almost under threat from the families. And that actually made them dig in rather than say, OK, they've got a good point here. Maybe we ought to explore this. I think the police made a very bad mistake by becoming entrenched in their views rather than thinking... The obvious. Well, as you said, Mike, the police may have believed that Jack Taylor died of an overdose, but his family thankfully didn't. And they launched their own investigation and well done to them. And they searched the Internet and newspaper archives to look at links between these murders. And they were convinced that all four deaths were connected and they took their case to the police. On the night of Jack's murder, they knew that he'd been at Barking Tube Station, so they persuaded the police to look at CCTV footage from the area. The police could see, and it was clear from the video footage, that Port had met Jack Taylor that night and then went to Port's flat. The Taylor family forced the police to release the CCTV to the media, although in the end it was a policeman who recognised Port in the footage. Port was arrested and taken into custody 
and Jack Taylor's family were vindicated. Well done to them. If the Taylor family hadn't intervened, how many other victims might Port have had? He would have carried on and carried on. We've got a history quite clearly of somebody who's killing on a regular rate. He's going to speed up. He's going to escalate his standards. He's going to try and avoid detection. He's going to get better avoiding detection. But then he's also going to make some fatal mistakes because he's become so arrogant, and rightly so because he's getting away with it, he's going to be so arrogant he will make a very simple mistake and that's how he would be in court. But it could be two, three, four, five, six more homicides down the line. Liz, did Port choose the wrong victim, someone who wasn't a loner or isolated, someone who may not have had a family to come out railing and fighting on his behalf. In Jack Taylor, he's he's chosen a victim who has a family who cares about him. He comes from, from a family group who are quite kind of proximate to each other, so they're not living in different countries, they're not kind of separated geographically, so, so we know that, that Anthony Wolgate was away at university. So in Jack Taylor, you've got somebody who, when they go off the radar, their family are going to notice very quickly and they are going to make a big fuss about it. So so Stephen Port might have thought he was targeting somebody who was marginalised, vulnerable, like his previous victims, but actually this was a young man who was going to be missed and he was going to be missed quickly. Well, his digital tracks, and we're talking about social media murders here, but his digital tracks, was he not at all concerned about the forensic trail that would leave behind, Mike? Would he have known about that? I mean, the, the I think mm. if he watched any bit of crime <laughs> drama, no. he'd know about that. I think people are quite forensically aware in terms of physical evidence often, mm. but in terms of digital evidence, people really are quite ignorant yeah. still, aren't they? Liz, does Port really think he's still going to get away with this? Well, he's got away with it several times before, so why should anything change now? I, I really do think that's what's on his mind at this point in time. I mean, against all the weight of evidence, the police also had accessed his computer and found 20 social media accounts with over 200 images and 10 million lines of data, which showed that he'd searched for videos of people being raped while unconscious. And, of course, the Internet was his downfall. He founded victims through the Internet, and, of course, his Internet searches helped convict him. So much evidence here. Yeah, but that doesn't matter. To him, it doesn't matter. Because Why didn't he plead guilty? Why should he plead guilty? And this is the irrational thinking of, a, of the man, is that he doesn't think he's done any harm, he's got no sense of guilt, he's got no empathy with the victims, victim families, so why should he? And he's also quite narcissistic. So this is somebody who's kind of lived in the shadows his whole life. Nobody's kind of recognised him. Nobody's really kind of made made something out of him. Now he's going to make something out of himself. This is his one opportunity for everybody to be looking at him, and he quite enjoys it. And that's the control. He is still in control. I'm not going to plead guilty, therefore I'm in control of what goes on in the case. Stephen Port was found guilty of four murders, but intriguingly was found guilty of 22 other offences and also the drugging and sexual assault of seven other victims, which came to light ultimately during the police final investigation. Liz, what kind of killer? How would you define him? I would describe him as a predator. So looking at murderers and their, their use of social media, there's, there's a subgroup who, who I call predators. So they use the internet to, to fish for victims. They use the internet to find out information about people that they can take advantage of and, and then gain access to those people. How significant were the gay dating apps and the internet and social media in this case? Oh, I think they're very important, simply because he could 
actually specifically identify the kind of male he wanted. Instead of going to the pub or the gay clubs and things like that and trying to work out whether they were the right ones for his fantasies, and we are talking about his fantasies, by going on the internet he's saying, I want this, this, this kind of person, he finds them, he makes contact, they either take up the, the interest or they don't. But he's being very specific, and that's the advantage. It saves him a great deal of time and effort. He knows that when these guys are knocking on their door, they're coming for sex, they know it's going to be a bit of rough sex and things like that. They know what the game is. Liz, what lessons do the police have to learn from this? That they need to, to treat every case that they come across in, in the way that they're supposed to treat it as a homicide until you can demonstrate otherwise. I think it's some of those really key basic points about murder investigation. Well, I think importantly, because of Jack Taylor's family, I think the police will learn some key lessons in this. Port was sentenced finally to a whole life tariff, meaning he will never be released from jail. Well, thank you to my guests, Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and clinical forensic psychologist Mike Berry. And of course, you can watch the full documentary, Click for Murder, Stephen Port on CBS Reality. From me, Donald McIntyre, goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.